Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right, so we're in our third week of Advent, and uh, some of you might be wondering, like, why did we just hear from the book of Revelation? Um, <laughs> what does the apocalypse have to do with Advent? And the answer is everything. Uh, the global church for the last 2,000 years has celebrated Advent, which is a season of preparing and awaiting, of longing, of yearning. That's what we do up to the Christmas day. I grew up calling it the Christmas season, and there's nothing morally wrong with that. And in a way it is, but really the way the church talks about it is Advent, that it's a time of preparing ourselves for Christmas Day as we await the celebration of the birth of the King. And so there have been three Advents, or there's three Advents that the church celebrates. One is in the birth of Christ. Two is in how the Advent of how Christ comes to us daily by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. And then three, the final advent is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're talking about advent, that there is still another chapter to be written. And so that's what the church, that's what we put our attention on today. Um, the great, uh, ancient confession of the church that's often been said at communion is Christ has come, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So today I want to talk to you seriously about the return of Jesus um, as the hope of all who place their faith in him. And talking about the return of Christ is not a, uh, a doctrine to be silly about or sloppy with. And yet here in the Western world, we have um, by and large insisted on taking God's word concerning the last days and turning them into a form of entertainment and escapism. Over the last few years, I've grown to love uh, one writer in particular. Her name is Tish Warren. She's an Anglican minister. And um, I've read everything she's written so far, or published anyway. And she wrote a great little book this year called Advent. And here's what she has to say uh, about the second coming of Jesus. It says, at times, Christians have made the return of Christ seem either hokey or horrifying. In much of the popular media surrounding the rapture and the apocalypse books, films, tracts, and so on, teachings about the eschaton or the end times are used as a scare tactic. Give your life to Jesus or you'll have to endure catastrophes to come. When I think of the second coming of Christ, my mind flits between Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. Did any of you read that? Oh, okay. The Left Behind series and Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth and bumper stickers that proclaim, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. My husband's childhood church in Georgia, it was not the church I grew up at, but we were just as crazy. Um, my husband's childhood church in Georgia had an in case of rapture vault, no joke that contained a TV, a VCR, and a video explanation of what to do after the rapture had occurred and you were left behind. Please tell, raise your hand if you have heard of, I'd never even heard of a rapture vault. Has anybody? Okay, 
Oh gosh, there's one. Oh my gosh. Okay. I thought I had heard it all. And then you're like, wow, I missed that. Okay. A rapture vault with a video explanation of what to do after the rapture had occurred and you were left behind. I suppose they hoped someone would stumble in and find it amid the apocalypse. Churches with rapture vaults would be incomprehensible to the vast majority of Christians throughout time. The idea of the rapture, and its pop, as it's popularly conceived, sprung up around the 19th century. But as a child and a teenager, my husband didn't know this, had not always been the, case, been the church's teaching about scripture. These ideas were in part why he gave up on church for a while after he left home for college. These bizarre teachings are not good news. Bad second coming theology has done a number on our theological imaginations. It has made the return of Christ seem like the stuff of, a ba of badly written fan fiction, apocalyptic horror, and anti-intellectual pie-in-the-sky escapism. These novel teachings may have made many Christians anxious about a doctrine that has historically been a chief source of hope for the church. In order to faithfully and fully enter into this coming of Advent, then we may have some unlearning to do. And I, having grown up in the church, and coincidentally enough, in a church in Georgia, I completely understand what Tish is talking about. And that's not uncommon in many kind of evangelical circles around the United States to resonate a little bit at least with what she's talking about here. Um, the idea of a rapture, a secret disappearing of the church, suddenly vanishing. All the Christians are just gone suddenly in a moment. Just before it gets bad, like really bad, called tribulation, um, is a popular idea, but it's misguided completely. It's entirely fiction. It's Hollywood. In fact, that's why they've made movies in Hollywood about this. So it's made up. And if the early church or the persecuted church all over the globe today heard of how many, so many of us have taught or taught or we think about the second coming of Christ, they'd honestly roll their eyes. Why? Because tribulation is not something that we're awaiting. It got underway the very moment that Jesus said it is finished, was buried, and rose from the grave. That's when the last days, according to the way the New Testament speaks about the last days, that's when it began. So this is why in the very opening of the book of Revelation, the writer John, he says this, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation, so somehow he's under the impression it's already going on. Why? And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was, oh, he was banished to the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The New Testament authors all thought of themselves already currently in tribulation in which the kingdom of darkness is raging against Christ and his accomplished victory in the death and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God. 
So John thinks he's in tribulation. And the church would go, yeah, we are. We're being dragged off into prison and put to death on account of not just voting the wrong way, on account of the testimony of who Jesus is. So with our time this morning, um, I want to tell you a little bit about, one, the genre of apocalyptic literature, two, about the book of Revelation itself, three, the historical context in which the book was written, and then get into, finally, the hope of Advent in the second coming of Jesus. So first, the genre itself. Um, Revelation, is, as you know, is the last book of the Bible, and the Bible is a book made up of many books. You could think of it as God's library to the church, and it's arranged according to genres. So when you open it up, there's law, and there's prophets, and there's wisdom literature, and there's poems, and then there's gospels, and then there's the history, like the book of Acts, and then there's letters, and then you have things like apocalyptic literature. It concerns itself with last things. In the Old Testament, you've got books like Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Daniel, especially, do this apocalyptic kind of talking. Uh, but really, only in the New Testament do you have that same kind of genre show up in the book of Revelation, where it's concerned with last things. And so, for approximately 400 years, from roughly 200 BC to 200 AD, the genre of apocalyptic literature became very popular, both in Christian circles, in Jewish circles, and in socio-political circles as well. And the big idea is that because it was a genre that the people were reading of the day, they were able to, to connect with people. It was what they were into. At one time in the United States, people watched, I don't know, Westerns. And now we watch, I don't know, maybe you watch Marvel movies or something, but based on what time it is and what the people are into, apocalyptic literature was like that. It was a timely way to communicate to people. And it always involved the same things, whether it's in the Bible or whether it was in a Jewish text or a sociopolitical text, it always had the same ideas going on. Basically, there is a God and some kind of divine secret message that's going to be revealed through a prophet or a messenger, a seer. And and that God's sovereignty is going to be compared to the brokenness of the world. And somehow, we're supposed to make sense out of this, and uh, it's going to be okay. That's essentially kind of how apocalyptic literature worked, both inside the church and outside the church. Okay. The author is the Apostle John. He was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was writing toward the end of the first century, roughly AD 90. And why is he writing in this genre, and what's he trying to accomplish? Well, here's what he's not doing. He's not giving you just a few pieces of a puzzle together and hoping that if you're smart enough and paying close enough attention, you can kind of put the puzzle all together and go, ah, now I know when Christ is going to return, and ah, now I know how it all, I, I can figure it out. If this person gets elected, then that means this, and then all the dominoes are going to, that's not how the book is intended to be interpreted at all. It's written as a book of hope. It's written as a book of encouragement and instruction to the church in a very difficult 
time. So if you sit down and read the book, it'll take you about 90 minutes to read it from cover to cover. And as you do, you'll notice a few things about how John beautifully arranged the book from the prologue to the adventure itself, to the epilogue, to beyond time itself. The way it's arranged is is very thoughtful. So it opens, as we mentioned a moment ago, John's suffering under persecution. He's been banished. Some say that he was actually boiled in oil and then banished, but he was banished to the island of Patmos. And it's here that he receives the revelation from Jesus. So in Revelation, John receives four visions. And in each scene, he's transported somewhere else to behold something that Jesus is doing. So in the first three chapters, you see Jesus walking among the churches, the lamp stands. He's walking among the churches and he's correcting them. He's rebuking them. He's affirming them. He's instructing them. He's pointing some things out of going, okay, you've relaxed commandments here. You need to repent and change here. Or you're believing false doctrine over here. Here's how I want you to think. Jesus is the ultimate faithful pastor walking among his churches, caring for his people in each of their contexts. That's how it opens. And then the next vision, Jesus is no longer walking among the churches. John is transported to the throne room of God. And this takes up most of the book, chapters four through 16. And in the throne room, he sees God's judgment of those who do not follow Jesus and instead chose to persecute the church. And it's told through a series of numbers of threes and sevens. There's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls poured out on the earth as God is judging the wicked. In the third vision, John is transported to the desert. He's out in the desert and, and he begins to see the great Babylon itself comes under God's final judgment and all who have ever opposed God. And in the fourth vision, it begins in chapter 21, he's taken up onto a high mountain and it's there that he beholds the destruction of the wicked and the restoration of all creation. So the purpose, as I mentioned a moment ago, the purpose of Revelation is not trying to sort out all the details about figuring out exactly when Jesus is going to return and all that. It's written to teach people to live by faith even though the world and our own flesh oftentimes feels quite afraid. It's a book about living by faith instead of fear. And so the context under which the church was founded was under, as I mentioned, severe persecution. Both tremendous social, physical, and financial pressure was on the church. The the ancient world in which Jesus lived and the world in which the church was born was filled to the brim with religiosity, spirituality, and politics all kind of rolled into one. And so ancient Rome intermingled religion and politics um, in order to establish a kind of a, a state where things were cohesive and there was uniformity amongst everyone. So 
I thought I would read this excerpt from a book I read earlier this year from a guy named Larry Furtado, um, or Hurtado, um, who was a, was a Bible scholar over in Scotland, and he wrote this book called uh, The Destroyer of the Gods, and it's basically helping us understand how the church thrived in the first century in a hostile environment. Here's what he said, or says, amongst the, uh, as well as the diversity of divine beings, so there's a pantheon of gods in Rome, we must also note the ubiquitous place of the reverence given to them in the lives of people at the time. Here is a particular instance where the modern notion of religion as a separate sphere, distinguishable from politics or social life, simply does not fit. We may think of religion as something you do, for example, on Sundays, or if you're Jewish, on Sabbath. But in the Roman Empire, what moderns call religion was virtually everywhere, a regular and integral part of the fabric of life. Members of Roman households, the family and their slaves too, gathered daily to reverence the household laws. Residents of a a given city might be expected to take part in periodic expressions of reverence, such as processions and sacrificial offerings to the guardian god or goddess of the city. Even ordinary activities such as giving birth or eating or traveling in the meetings of guilds and other social groups or in, other, or in the formal meetings of a city council, people typically offered appropriate expressions of reverence to the relevant divinities. For example, at many such occasions, a libation of wine might be made. That is, a bit of wine would be spilled out in honor of the tutelary deity of the occasion. At the highest and widest level, there were also deities identified as guardians and the ultimate basis of the empire itself. In short, from the lowest to the highest spheres of society, all aspects of life were presumed to have connections with divinities of various kinds. There was really nothing like the modern notion of a separate secular space of life free from deities and relevant rituals. It's also important to underscore the point that all deities were deemed worthy of reverence. To deny a deity worship, and that typically meant sacrifice, was effectively to deny the gods reality. Individual pagans of that time did not feel it obligatory to reverence reverence each and every deity, but in principle, all gods were entitled to be reverenced. So the people of the Roman period generally found no problem in participating in the worship of various and multiple deities. Almost done. People did not select this or that deity as their personal God to the exclusion of others. Gosh, mark that for those of us who, well, anyway. But they did typically approach or invoke or appeal to various deities as appropriate to the occasion. To repeat, there were various divinities linked with various sites, occasions, venues, and spheres of life. The gods typically had individual portfolios. So for example, if you set out for a sea voyage, you might well appeal for a safe journey uh, to a sea deity such as Poseidon. Or if a member of your family needed healing from some injury or illness, you would appeal to an appropriate deity such as Asclepius. If, however, you needed a bit of help in matters of love, you might appeal to Aphrodite or to some powerful diamond 
uh, class of spirit beings by using magical invocations. If you were a member of a given guild, such as bakers, you would join with other members in rituals and reverencing the patron divinity of your guild. There are also deities linked to the various army legions. Meetings of city authorities would typically include the acknowledgement of appropriate deity associated with the city. So you see what's going on here? Everything was religion. Everything. If you're a baker, you're reverencing the God of grain with all the bakers before you go to work. Before any meeting is happening, there's some kind of sacrifice being made in every sphere of life. All. And so everyone, it was typical to just tip your hat to the local deity. If you're traveling anywhere, you're like, oh, the God of so-and-so is in charge of commerce here. Okay, we'll make a sacrifice. So this is how the world operated when the church was born. And suddenly there's one born king of kings and lord of lords. What does this band of Christians look like in a society like that where suddenly now all of a sudden everything in society was condemned in the New Testament as idolatry? What does that mean? I mean, in the first century, scholars estimate there's only 10,000 Christians total by the end of the first century. It's only 10,000. In a region spanning from England to India. (laughs) So persecution got turned way up. And I don't have to belabor any of the points on how Rome became so brutal with the execution of, of, of Christians. But they perfected means of shame and torture with the intention of erasing Christians the way we spray for spiders in August. Like, remember, to crucify somebody in the first century was not just public execution and shame and torture. Because Cicero had outlawed the speaking of crucifixion among Roman civilians, because it was so heinous, it was a way of erasing the fact that the person ever existed. That's how Rome worked. That's why they were crucifying upwards of 600 Christians a day. This is the world in which the church was born. So, you can see why the Christians in the first century were so weary. I'm exhausted with this. I'm tired of living afraid. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of not fitting in. I'm tired. My, my vision of the, the life I've been called to live does not correspond to anything. I'm no longer going to the guilds. I'm no longer offering sacrifices. I look like I don't fit in anywhere. Now I don't think like anybody, except for my few other friends that are also following Jesus. You can see why they were weary. What about you? Are you weary? or disappointed, or just burnt out with Jesus and the church. Maybe not Jesus, but definitely the church. That's not uncommon to hear anymore. When you look around at your world right now (laughs) and think about the fact that you've still got more life to live, you stoked on that? 
maybe, in some ways, maybe not. Do you want to live for the glory of God? I mean, if you live 80 years, you get 29,200 days. I've burnt a lot of them. Do I want to spend them on God? Is the temptation of the age of just like you do you actually sounding more appealing now? Do you feel like relaxing a few of the commandments of the Lord in the name of not rocking the boat? Where are you hard pressed right now to deviate from what God's called you to? So how does Jesus speak to weary people anyway? (laughs) Well, he doesn't say pick up a gun and shoot back. And he also doesn't say go into a place of escapism and hide out in like a little Christian subculture and retreat. Jesus um, goes into his studio, sets up his easel, and gets the canvas and begins to mix paints and he paints a picture for his people to behold all over the globe for the rest of time. He does not say panic. He doesn't say retreat. He doesn't say become angry or violent or hang your finger up to the society around you. He says, I need you to just take your attention from right here and I want you to see this picture I'm about to paint you. So he paints a picture for the church that anyone can look at at any time. And you don't have to have it all figured out in order to get a jigsaw puzzle. All you have to do is look at the picture and the picture will do the work for you. That's what most good art does. Oftentimes, you don't actually need the artist there to explain. Like we're still looking at Michelangelo's work and he's long gone. But we get the point. Revelation gives you a picture. So, I'm at the bottom of page six out of seven, so don't worry. Like, how long are we going to be here? At least till Christmas. Okay. Revelation 19 says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The early church fathers made it really clear that it wasn't the blood of others, it was his own. And that no one knows by himself, and he's called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
Words like wrath of God are overwhelmingly unpopular outside the church, and honestly, they're overwhelmingly unpopular inside the church. It just sounds too primal, too primitive, no way. So inside the church, we find ways around words like wrath of God by redefining other words like sin. So here's how it works. All you have to do is call sin a disease, for example. And then Jesus comes and heals us of the disease of sin. But that still somehow makes us like kind of a passive victim. I mean, if I got the flu, I can't help if I throw up. And yes, sin is called a disease once or twice in the Bible. But the overwhelming majority of the time, sin is not painting us as the passive victim of something else. Sin is defined as defying God and his will and his law and his commands and his character and his nature. Sin is our own personal responsibility, and it's affected everything in all of creation. And so other ways that we try to get around it in the church is we say, well, God doesn't actually exercise wrath. The consequences of sin are just, they're just kind of the consequences that naturally play out. Like if you, if you climbed up on top of the church building and jumped off it today, well, naturally, you're going to get really hurt. You might actually die uh, because that's just how gravity works. That's how sin is. You, you go and live a sinful life, and you turn around, and you're like, oh, my gosh, my life's a mess. And maybe that's, that, that's all this really is. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is offended over our sin. And God is just, and God is holy, and God is righteous, and God does not back down. That God has not relaxed his, his perfection at all. And he's not compromised his standard for his people or his world at all. And so God feels wrath. And wrath is the opposite side of the coin of love. You too feel wrath when someone you love is taken advantage of and harmed or abused and suddenly something wells up in you and you're saying, this is very, very wrong and I feel angry about this. Why do you feel that? Because you love that person deeply. And in our day and age, it is a thing where it's okay for God to be loving. Of course, if he exists, then he has to be love and only love and only love in the way that I define love. But God, the Bible tells us, he is not wrath, but he expresses wrath. And not towards sin in general, but towards sinners. 
personally. So John sees the end and he says, I see Jesus treading out the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. And if any of us are gulping right now going, am I a candidate for that? Outside of Jesus, the answer is yes. John 3, Jesus says, in the famous passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We all know this one. In the very same chapter, Jesus is found saying, and whoever does not have the son, the wrath of God remains on that person. So how do I get out from under the wrath of God? And how can I experience life with God? Not just as a servant, but as a friend, a child. Jesus went to Calvary and died as the Lamb of God so that what God said in Exodus 12 would become true again and become final. Remember when the Passover lambs were sacrificed and the blood was painted over the frame of the door? What happens? It says the destroyer moves in. He says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over. On Good Friday, the father sees the sacrifice of his son and passes over. His wrath is averted. And this is good news for us because God did not compromise his holiness in bringing us into his family. Do you ever go into a place and you kind of feel like, I don't know if I'm totally welcome here. I don't know if I totally fit in. You won't feel that in the kingdom of God because you totally belong. Because God didn't compromise his character and he's not about to lash out. But God in his love was able to both satisfy his justice and bring us into his family through the perfection of the work of the Son of God. And friends, Jesus was not a passive victim as though he was drug around in some kind of abusive situation. He repeatedly made it abundantly clear, I and the Father are one. He and the Father had set out in perfection to cooperatively accomplish salvation for us. So when Christ went to his cross, that's why the writer of Hebrews could say something like, for the, uh, who for the uh, joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. That Jesus and the Father cooperatively accomplished our redemption in separating our sins as far as the east is from the west. So, why is, this, why is this a message of hope or encouragement to the weary church? Because God's not indifferent to our suffering. God's not indifferent to racism. God has an opinion about it. God's not indifferent to trafficking and abuse. God's not indifferent to what we see on Aurora every day. God has an opinion. God's not indifferent to seeing children in cancer wards. 
God's not indifferent to this world that keeps us up at night where we're just frustrated and weary. God's not indifferent. We're not deists. We're Christians. God is involved in the suffering of this world and not just kind of watching it going, gosh, it looks terrible down there. No, the good news of the gospel is that God did what no other God would ever consider doing, clothing himself in flesh. The creator becomes part of creation to come into creation, to separate sin and pull sin out of creation and bring his creation back to himself. That's, that's amazing news. And as the church that is weary and many of us in this room are. We're discouraged in every direction. St. John paints a picture for us and says, it's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be like this. You're not always gonna feel like this. It's not always gonna be like this. Where relationships do that, or you go to a funeral that you never thought you'd have to go to. It's not always going to be like this. Thank God. Thank God you won't turn on this news every day and see something else from Palestine and Israel. Thank God you won't turn on the news and see Ukraine and Russia. Thank God you won't see starving people at our borders. Thank God that this is not the end. Thank God it's not over. And in the meantime, it is hard. It is. But we grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve in light of the resurrected Son of God who is going to return and make every crooked thing straight and right every wrong. Thank you, Jesus, that it's not over yet. And so if you're down, if you are down, you can lift your eyes again. And let me tell you, this isn't make-believe. God demonstrated in history his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is not a myth. This all comes from eyewitnesses who saw this and gave up their lives rather than recant their testimony. You're building your life on the solid rock of Jesus. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Gosh. And I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice and he called all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the, cap, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And the two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You see, the end 
of suffering and sin is not, well, maybe they'll just tire themselves out and somehow finally they'll all just wind down and go away. Kind of like you wear yourself out on a run or in the gym and you're finally like, I don't have anything left and that's just, I got to just go home. That's not what sin and suffering are doing. They're not even close to tired. So how will they meet their abrupt end? In the return of Jesus, it's over. That's how sin and suffering comes to an end. They meet Jesus and they give an account to Jesus and Jesus puts sin and suffering to death. The early church used to say, hail the king, he trampled down death by death. That's why it gives Christians hope. And that is the longing of the global church. The return, the advent of Christ, who in the first coming came as the lamb and in the second coming returns as the lion. So I'll just show you the beginning of the fourth vision and you can go read it for yourself later and we'll stop here. Revelation 21. Then... Now he's up on the mountain. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And for all of us in Seattle, we're going, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. What's that mean? We like the sea. It was John's way of reminding the people that in ancient Babylon, they would come across the sea to threaten and to take into captivity and enslave. And so John says, there's no sea, meaning nothing can come and get you. That was his way of, yeah. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Like Emmanuel. Like, like, like we'll never, we, we can't even comprehend at this point. God with us with no sin around. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. (laughs) That's the perfect ending to the perfect book, the perfect story, God's story, his plan for you includes no more tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more funerals, no more having to call the cops, no more ambulances, no more fire trucks, no more accidents. It's all gone. And the dwelling place of God will be with us. So that's the longing of the Christian and that's why the book ends with, so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Anytime you're ready, We are sitting on go. Come quickly. Make everything new, exactly the way you want it. 
If you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to place your faith in him. He loves you. If you do know Jesus, lift your head again. Maybe give yourself 90 minutes this week and just read Revelation here during Advent and recenter your heart on the second coming of Jesus, our hope. Okay. Now, to remind you as we take communion today, the early church would confess Christ has come. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. If he loved you enough to go through Calvary, he is coming for you. Okay. Stand with me to your feet, if you would. Thank you for listening so attentively. It is the book of Revelation. Um, thank you for listening. If our communion servers would take their place, that would be great. As you take communion today, remind your soul, God's not done with me. This is not the end. The final chapter is still to be written. Okay? Come receive whenever you're ready.